Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you in prayer. I'm asking that you would bless us in the uh, preaching and hearing of your word. Lord, we ask that you um, would make, continue to make known your promises to us, your great oaths. You are a God who never lies. You are a God who is infinitely capable of doing all your holy will. Nothing stands in your way. Not our sins, not the political powers of this world, not the devil, nothing. Nothing stops you from pouring out your goodness and making yourself known. And so we pray to you and ask that you would continue to do this work in us as you have promised to do. We pray this in Jesus' name, our great mediator. Amen. Well, please remain standing if you're able, and let's turn our attention to Titus. Titus chapter 1. This morning, I'm going to focus on Paul's command to Titus to appoint elders, to appoint elders with the qualifications that are coming after that in mind. We'll begin at verse 5, and I'll read through verse 9. So Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are faithful, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. May God bless his word to us. And please be seated. Some of you are 15, maybe 16, 17, 18, thinking about maybe getting um, your first job. And of course, many others of you have gone through this experience and you remember your, your first jobs. On that first time that you walked into a place and perhaps received a badge uh, or a t-shirt that said that you work here, right? And now you're in charge. Now you can do things and say things that you would have never dreamed of doing maybe just a week before, right? A week before, you would have never just walked behind a cash register and start opening it up. A week before, you would have never gone into that room that says, employees only, restricted access. And now you walk through just like you're somebody, (laughs) 
And you are, because you got the shirt, right? You got the shirt, and hopefully some training as well, but some jobs, not even that. You just got a shirt. But there's something that's empowering about that, right? Something that says, I'm authorized, and everybody knows it. Now, of course, right, you could pretend to do that, and you could get in big trouble for that, right? If somebody pretends that they are authorized to be a police officer, for example, when they are not, you can get in big, big trouble, right? It's an, um, but that, that, that feeling and that, um, that experience is, is remarkable on even this level. Well, something like that happens at an even greater level when Jesus appoints people to serve in his church, and when, people, and when Jesus even appoints people to appoint people to serve in his church, which is what he's doing here. The Apostle Paul is telling Titus, you, need, you are authorized to go do this work. And although it's not mentioned here, it's, it's not just Titus. Um, this word authorize um, is used in a lot of different contexts um, to describe a lot of different processes. There's a lot of things in the pastoral epistles where we don't have all the details about how these things happen. Right? How exactly is Titus going to appoint elders in every town? Well, presumably some of that is finding those people or maybe training those people. We have an interesting parallel in Acts chapter 6 where the, uh, the, the, the church is called to uh, put forward uh, names of deacons um, who meet certain qualifications. And then as, those, as the church puts those men forward, then the apostles then authorize them uh, to do the work, which just follows the model that we follow here in our church. Um, men are nominated for office. Um, they are tested, trained, um, voted on, and then authorized through the laying on of hands to go about and do that work. And so something like that is probably what is happening here. Um, it's probably a little bit dependent on each situation. I know this from talking with um, church planters around our denomination and in other denominations. Right? There's always a, every process and every person is, is a little bit different and depending on how the Lord is working in this man or that man's life. But it's a really an amazing and remarkable thing, and that's the big idea of this sermon. My main point here is that it's through faith, not in our t-shirts or badges, but ultimately in Jesus Christ himself, who was appointed by God, a, a, a word that is used to describe him as he is made, for example, a high priest, a king. It's through our faith in him and his appointment over us as head of the church that we then go and appoint elders in our churches. Through faith in him, we go about and do this work. Let's first think about Titus's situation, and I want to make a few observations how it's not that different from our own, even though there are some similarities. First, Let's start with just how do you plant a church? How do you plant a church in the apostolic way? Well, you could summarize it maybe in these four steps. First, you send people to go and preach and teach. 
You send them out. You pray for them. You give them money. You support them, and you say, go. And then that person goes, and maybe they go to a synagogue. Maybe they go into a house. Maybe they go into a marketplace. They go and try to find people and preach and teach. If there are Christians who may be already there, then they are, you perhaps invite someone to come to preach and to teach and, and to administer the word, inviting people to come into contact with the word of God. So that's step one. Someone goes, preaches, teaches. Step two, get persecuted. This is the apostolic way, right? You read Acts, and this is the common pattern, right? They go they, Paul, for example, he'll preach, he'll teach, and then he runs out of town. <laughs> Not because he's scared, well, he may be scared, um, but he's under attack, right? He's trying to preserve his life. We know, however, that he's more committed to the word than to his own life because he comes back. That's step three. Return and find out what's growing. Disciple, preach, teach some more. And then finally, as these believers that the Lord is growing, mature, and the fruits of the Holy Spirit are produced in them, then from those, you begin to appoint elders in these various places. You appoint elders uh, so that you can, as Titus is going to do, put what remains into order. And as men are chosen and appointed to serve as leaders in these various congregations, the work of the Lord and discipleship and, and teaching and preaching and caring and loving and sometimes rebuking and challenging, all of this continues to go forward. That's a rough sketch. And there are variations, but it gives you uh, the basic pr- uh, picture. And so, as I said in a previous sermon, what Titus is called to do here is very similar to what we are trying to do here in Tucson and throughout southern Arizona. As I mentioned previously, the whole island of Crete is about a third of the size of Pima County, with somewhere around 15 major cities on the island. From end to end, it's about the distance from Sells to Wilcox, from Green Valley to Casas Adobes. According to a 2019 report from Barna Research, the Tucson Sierra Vista um, Oh, I forget what they call it, commercial district or something like that. It's just a way of designating groups of areas. Um, That area, Tucson, ranks 16 in America's most post-Christian cities. Number 16 out of the um, most post-Christian cities. What does that mean? It means that more than half of our community meets at least nine of the following characteristics. There's 16 of them. They're very brief. I'm going to read them to you. Means that more than half of our community meets at least nine of these. They'll say, yeah, that's, that's me. Does not believe in God. Identifies as an atheist or agnostic. Disagrees that faith is important in their lives. Has not prayed to God in the last week. Has never made a commitment to Jesus. Disagrees that the Bible is accurate has not donated money to a church in the last year, has not attended a church in the last six months, does, uh, agrees that Jesus committed sins, does not feel a responsibility to share their faith, 
has not read the Bible in the last week, has not volunteered at church, has not attended Sunday school, has not attended a religious small group. And on a Bible engagement scale, it's low. Hasn't read the Bible in the past week or disagrees strongly uh, or somewhat strongly that the Bible is accurate. Would not describe themselves as born again. So if, according to this study, for whatever that's worth, if you meet nine, at least nine of these characteristics, that's a lot, I think. <laughs> if you meet nine of them, not eight or seven or six or five, but if you meet nine, that qualifies you under this study for what they call post-Christian. And what they are saying is that within Tucson, more than half of the people here in our city meet, these, meet this qualification. It's possibly higher, possibly a little lower, but that's a lot every other person more. I know lots of people like this, and I suppose you do too. Maybe you'd say that even some of these things describe you a little bit, or maybe a lot. And what are we to say of those that are Christians? How mature are they? Think of yourself. Think of the people you know. Think of the men that you know. Do they meet the qualifications, uh, the qualities that Paul lists here for Titus. How many men do you know that are ready to say, yeah, I could do that. I'd be willing to help. Our challenge is similar to Titus in that there are many people who don't know Jesus, who are hopeless and trapped and in need of salvation. They need to hear the good news. And there are many more who maybe do know Jesus a little bit, but not very much. Many people that are not in close contact with the word of God as they need to be. Many Christians whose faith is very shaky, whose worship is so meager, whose lives are, are really threadbare with hope because they lack the word of God. They lack the faithful proclamation of it in both the explicit teaching and in the lives of godly men. But our challenge is also different in some ways. It's not exactly the same, and that's worth thinking about for a moment as we think about how we apply this command in our own church, in our own context. Whereas Titus faced a world that was pre-Christian, right? And hardly anybody had heard about Jesus when Titus uh, came into Crete. We face a world that has been described, as was in this study, as post-Christian, the difference has been described well by a man whose last name I cannot pronounce, so I'm not going to try, <laughs> but you can find his article uh, on the First Things website called This Time Won't Be the Same. I want to read a little bit of his description, of the difference between these two things. Let me see if it resonates. Because uh, the gospel was new to him, that is, the old world pagan, the pagan needed to learn it from the beginning. The neo-pagan is in a very different position. He needs to unlearn things that he has learned about the gospel that happen to be untrue. We see a trivial symptom uh, of the problem in the great number of people who think the little drummer boy was supposed to have accompanied the shepherds a notion that makes Christmas, the Christmas narrative seem most implausible to anyone more than 10 years of age. But non-existent drummer boys are the least of the problems. 
The neo-pagan is likely to have entirely mistaken views about what Christians believe concerning creation, the fall, redemption, about God, man, and the relation between God and man. In other words, there's a lot of people who think they know what Christianity and have entirely mistaken notions about it. A couple other quotes. He says, The pagan world was unfamiliar with Christian ideas. By contrast, the neo-pagan world is brimming with them. The makers of that world have even appropriated some of them, but have emptied them of Christian meaning. The old world had not yet felt the caress of grace. Our world, once brushed, now flinches from its touch. That kind of visceral reaction when people find out you're a Christian. That feeling that you are immediately identified as an immoral person even, a bigot, or someone who's hateful. These are the challenges that we face. Helping people to unlearn things they think they know will not be easy. Teaching them to be skeptical of themselves in a world that prizes above all the self and confidence in self will be hard. Calling people to be willing to suffer even unjustly for the sake of Christ on hot topic issues like sexuality will feel impossible, but it's essential. And we need mature Christians to lead the way. Men who meet these qualifications, men who know uh, the word of God and are willing and ready to do the hard work. The necessity of elders is clear from the work that they're called to do here. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And then he continues, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. They must be silent, say that they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Or consider, um, consider uh, this passage from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4. In 1 Timothy 4, he reminds, uh, he reminds them that, um, chapter 1, that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. He describes in other places that in the last days there will be people who are insubordinate and empty talkers. In another place he describes that in the last days there are people who have itching ears, you know, accumulating all kinds of teachings, on people that go into houses and, and, and upset and disturb. It's a hard situation. What kind of people are going to be needed to bring the word of the Lord to the world? In order to bake a cake, you have to have ingredients, right? You have to have certain things that all get into that bowl at the right time and at the right temperature in order to make something delicious. What Paul is saying here is of an elder is the same thing. There are things that are required here of an elder, required here um, 
of those who will go and do this work, who will be the Lord's under-shepherds and will help um, both in preaching and teaching, in discipling and training. We'll talk more about these qualifications um, next time. Um, let me just summarize them by saying, by put it, giving you these three C's, competence, compassion, and character. Or if I could sneak another one in there, conviction-based character. Integrity, skill, love. These are the kind of men that we need to watch over the sheep, to teach, to feed, to guard, to love, to train, and help. And we all have a part to play. If you're like, oh, good, I'm not an elder. <laughs> I, I don't have any part in this. It's not true. We all have a part to play as the body of Christ in this work that Titus is calling us, or that Paul called Titus to do and calls us to do as well. For my part, as the pastor of this church, it's a lot of prayer and teaching. It's talking to people, discipling, giving folks things to read. I'm giving opportunities to serve, encouragement through rough spots, challenges when things aren't going well, um, even rebukes occasionally and as necessary, guarding the flock against those that are not ready but would seek to promote themselves and put themselves forward. All of these things are things that I feel responsible for and try to do according to the Lord's mercy and grace. What's your part? Well, first, it's to grow, to be growing in Christ in your own capabilities, compassion and character. Even if, even if you uh, will never be an elder or a pastor, this is something that we all do and we all do together and we grow in uh, together. And for those of you um, uh, young boys and men who may be one able to serve one, the Lord one day in this capacity, we have an opportunity and obligations to help and come alongside these brothers. Take Timothy as a, as a good example of this. Yes, Paul is the one that authorized him and brought him along as a co-worker, but it was years before that that his mother and his grandmother were testing and training and encouraging and challenging him, praying for him, bringing him to Jesus. All of us have roles in this process, sometimes very direct, sometimes indirect, but we're all members of the same body. We're all members of this same body which is called forward in this work, and every member matters. You matter. In some way or another, each of us should be in community and serving and giving, building into the lives of one another, growing in unity, building, as Paul says, building ourselves up in love as God gives us grace. And so as we come to uh, a clearer and clearer understanding of this in ourselves, it's also our responsibility as a congregation to be, have a clearer and clearer understanding of what these qualifications are in, the lives, in, in, in our lives and in the lives of others. I think I can put that more clearly. There are times when we and you are called upon to say, yes, I believe that person is qualified and I am going, willing to submit to him as an elder. 
as a ruler in this church. Well, how are you going to know if he's qualified if you don't know what Paul is talking about here? How are you going to have a sense of what godly maturity is unless you've, never thought, unless you've thought about it and considered it and pondered it? It's all of our responsibilities to think carefully through these things and to not be foolish and rash about who we put over us as our leaders. And once we elect them and, and ordain them to be our leaders, once they are authorized and import, appointed Do we continue to pray for them, encourage them? Do we strengthen them in their work? Do we honor them and respect to them and submit to them in the Lord as we ought? You see what I mean? As a congregation, this is all of our responsibility. And these are the things that we need to aim for. It's the work of the Great Commission. It's how new churches are established and strengthened. It's how other churches develop and spring up. If new communities are to grow around the world, communities of believers and even in our own city and county, they're going to need to be leaders and lots of them. And not bad leaders or false leaders or somebody who stole a policeman's uniform out of the closet or an elder's uniform, whatever that looks like. Uh, We need people, we need brothers that are willing and ready and qualified to do that hard work. We also need informal lay leaders, many people at every level working and serving one another. But here the focus on these, is on these ordained elders. These are things that as a church we need to be thinking about, praying about, and actively doing. It doesn't happen all at once. Maturity, growth, sanctification, these things, they take a while sometimes. It's worth thinking about that and being active in that work. Now, a few years ago, we had someone over to our house to give us a price on some new windows. And it all sounded great, right? UV protection, better security, noise reduction, uh, clarity, uh, awesome clarity in the glass, we were told. Um, They showed us examples. They told us about their great reviews. But of course, this whole time, you know, like something's coming, right? What, what's the catch? All this is going to cost something, right? And yeah, boy, did it. <laughs> wow. Well, when we look at this list here, when Titus looks on this list and he sees this, you know, he's looking at Paul's letter on his desk and all these features, all these qualities of these elders, he's got to ask himself, what's the cost? What's the cost? A lot of times we don't think about the cost. We just dive in and then we get all disappointed and sad when things turn out to be hard. But there's even more that's involved here, or more that's required than just counting the cost. Because the way that you get men like this isn't the way it works in most other places. In most businesses, here's how this works. You get your qualifications together like this, Okay, that looks good. It's not a bad list of qualifications overall may, uh, for a, a normal secular business. Maybe erase something here and there, a certain way of understanding things. But overall, you want a moral person, right? You want somebody who's a hard worker, that kind of thing. So you put together a small team, maybe a big team, but you start going out and you look for people that'll meet these qualifications. You search high and low. You do what you can to recruit, to make the position attractive, 
then you find ways to onboard them. If they can't work, uh, or if, they, if, they, if it's not working, then you give them training, you give them manuals, booklets, you give them coaches, maybe even therapy, and over time you develop people so they grow into what they need to be for that job. That hopefully is, is um, not a crazy idea to you. Many of you have experienced that in your own workplaces. So we've got to kind of ask ourselves here, how is, is, is Titus being called to do anything different than we might see in our HR departments, in our workplaces? Is something else going on here or, or not? And I, I do think something else is going on here. There are a lot of things in the description that I just, in the thing I just described that we can use and should, testing, training, helping, coaching, that's all. It's discipleship, right? That's good. But as I said, either last week or the week before, the opposite of godliness is godlessness. And it's possible to have a very outwardly moral person that doesn't even know Jesus Christ, that doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't know how to lead you in Christ, that doesn't know how to love you in Christ, even though he's a great guy and you'd love to have him as your neighbor and you might even employ him in a business. Because it's possible for a person man, woman, boy, girl, to go about the work of self-improvement and outward morality and even inward in a little way and to go about doing that work in his own strength and to find a measure of success but not in any way that is going to lead anyone to Christ in a way that will only lead people to himself a moral hero for us to look at and say, man, if I could just be like him. <laughs> now, of course, Paul gives us examples. He, he tells Titus here uh, to be an example. <laughs> Titus is to follow his example. Paul says to people, be imitators of me. But there's, diff there's a difference here. Let me keep going. Imagine this man who's great at a lot of things. He's a good listener. He's a good manager. He's capable of organizing people, of raising money, of helping the poor, of even teaching good, positive, moral messages. We could even imagine a scenario in which this process of moral uh, and self-improvement cost him a lot. Maybe he'll be able to tell you how he stopped drinking so much or how he got his priorities right with his wife and kids finally. And now they're doing great. Maybe he'll be able to tell you about how he learned to live on less and to be more generous. And no doubt you can learn a lot of good things from this man. But you won't learn true godliness. Why? Because true godliness is only found in God. And God is only found in Christ. And you don't find Christ in your own good works. If we found him in our own good works, what need would there be for our Savior, for Christ, appointed by God to come into the world and to die this horrific, terrible death in which the wrath of God was poured out on him for what? Because we made a few mistakes in our self-improvement program? No, because we are sinners. And there is an, a brokenness, a, a relationship that is just 
totally and completely and irrevocably, if it were not for God's miraculous grace, broken. When we look at our own good works and when we look inside of ourselves at our own moral um, determination and don't look to Christ... It's kind of like the young woman in so many love stories who's head over heels for some guy who's just a terrible match. He lacks self-control, he doesn't love her, he calls her, causes her all sorts of grief, but because he's so handsome and he makes a lot of nice promises, she's blind, right? You know this story, right? We've seen this in movies and in books, right? She's blind to the hero that we all know that she really needs to be with. We're like, why doesn't she see this? Why doesn't she just... Good with the guy who is honorable and treats her right and loves her, right? This is like every Jane Austen novel, maybe. It's because she's distracted, right? She's focused on this other thing, this thing that makes her feel good, this thing that maybe doesn't demand very much. And we are like that with our, our moral self, self-improvement projects, self empowered self-improvement projects, they whisper these sweet nothings in our ear and say, you can do it. You're so great. Just try a little harder. Organize your schedule a little better. And then we always come up short. Meanwhile, the Savior of the world is standing right there. But we continue to cling to ourselves and our pride, and when we do that, we don't get him. He's hard that way. He's exclusive. He's not going to tolerate it. On the one hand, putting our faith in Christ costs us nothing. He loves us freely. He gives us promises of true life. But on the other hand, it costs us everything. We have to be willing to give up all those things which look like, look like life look like happiness, look like joy, but aren't. And that includes depending on our own good works. And there's another way that he's hard about this. Another way in which it costs to become like the description here in in Titus 1. A lot of times... The way that Jesus gets us to give up on ourselves so that we trust in him is by putting us through hell. He puts our law-keeping, our self-determination to the test. And hard. (laughs) He allows Satan to tempt us as Job was tempted. He pushes us to the limits and beyond the limits. He makes us struggle to the point of exhaustion and beyond. He brings us to this point, Jesus brings us to this point where we literally start saying the things that Job and Moses and David say. Things like, I'm dying here. I don't know what to do. I'm lost. I'm afraid. I'm out of breath. Help me. I can't do it. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. These 
descriptions and we read these things and we sort of imagine a graph, you know, with like, okay, here I'm at the bottom and then up and to the right. <laughs> That's not usually how it works. Usually the Lord brings lots of suffering and frustration and exhaustion and he brings us to our end in our emotions, in our bodies, in our minds, where we finally start giving up on ourselves and trusting in him. But you believers here know that he doesn't leave us in the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't leave us to die. He doesn't leave us to hell. He leads us through these places. He walks with us. He encourages us. He brings us out. So that when these things are produced in our lives and in the lives of our fellow believers, we know that it's him. It's the result of his green pastures his waters, his rod, his staff. It's him. It's all him. And when you have a man who understands that, who's lived it and is living it, that's a man who can take you to Christ. That's a man who can give you the water of eternal life when you need it the most. That's a man who's qualified When we think about what was going on in Creed and what's going on in here in Tucson, we have to remember this. God is at work. God is at work. He's not standing by watching us build our Tower of Babel that we call the church. He's building his own temple. And he's using us as his very own stones. And this includes our elders, past, present, and future. Jesus is not standing idly by waiting for us to just do these things. He's shaping, he's carving, he's placing, he's moving his leaders into place. He's moving all of us into place, each and every soul, building us up into this beautiful temple, a, a place where he will dwell closely with us and where we all live together in the worship of God. He's doing it in such a way that our capabilities and our character and our compassion is not built on, on sand. And it just gets washed away at the first trial and at his second coming. No, he's building these things in us the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the gifts and the requirements that are mentioned here. He's building these things in us, and he will complete that work. He does this not only for our benefit, but for all of us, so that when his under-shepherds teach us and warn us, protect us and encourage us, we know that they are not doing it for themselves, which is why they endure persecution, but they do it for him, and they do it for us. And we also know that they do it not by themselves, but by Jesus himself. So in conclusion, this means that the call for us to appoint elders is not just a reminder to be growing and praying together for maturity as a body and for future church bodies, 
But the call and behind that call for us to appoint elders, behind this amazing list, there is also a promise. A promise, as Hebrews 7 tells us, that God has appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. And in his perfection and in his strength and by praying to him and putting our faith in him and in him alone, he then gives us these graces. He does his works making us more and more like him. So as we pray, as we encourage, as we look around us, as we strengthen one another in all of our various callings, and today focusing particularly on those who are serving or may one day serve as elders in Christ's church, we do that not looking to them and their abilities, but with complete and total dependence on Christ. And when we do that, and when we see his work in his church, it will give us confidence and praise in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning for those um, who are elders in your church. On both those ruling elders and teaching elders who are responsible for the oversight of your flock, What a high calling, Lord. Uh, Perhaps we could say even a dangerous one. With many sacrifices and difficulties and struggles uh, that are required in it. We thank you, Lord, for those who have um, willingly taken on these tasks. Who have submitted themselves to um, the calling of you and of your people. And and who, um, even in seeing their own weaknesses... um, And because of seeing their own weaknesses, continue to go back to you over and over and over again to know your word and trust your word so that they might be solid, solid in you and able to bring others uh, to the rock. Lord, we ask, we, we thank you for them and this work that you do in your church. We pray for them and ask for your blessing on them. Keep them, protect them, grow them, strengthen them. Help them to become more and more Christian in all that they are. Looking to Christ, depending on Christ, trusting him in every circumstance and in every way. We also pray, Lord, for our future elders. We ask that you would would be working in and through us Um, to strengthen them, to comfort them, encourage them, build them up. May our conversations um, always be uh, pleasing to you. Um, May may we be uh, about the work of, of loving one another, of serving one another, and giving you all the praise. Lord, we also pray, Lord, for those who do not yet know you. We ask that this work of discipleship would be uh, done in and, and through us, to our friends and to our neighbors, and that from these uh, future uh, disciples, these people that turn to you in faith and hope and in love, that from them as well, uh, you would raise up overseers, under shepherds uh, for your church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.